0: love it. Aloha. Stay. Aloha. Aloha. Uh, and good evening. Uh, my name is Steven and I am an alcoholic. Hi, I got I can bring out my tissues. I'm always so moved by the, the countdown. To me, it's so full of hope and uh, what we as a community can do. Um, <clears throat> I want to first off thank the committee for giving me this amazing opportunity to be here with you all. I am definitely uh, grateful for it. And I want to thank my sober family from Hawaii. Uh, Many of them came out here to support me tonight. So I thank you for that. And (laughs) they gave me this beautiful flower lei. It's a ginger lei. And each one is a separate, individual flower. And it has the sweetest smell. So I invite you, after uh, (laughs) tonight, (laughs) Come up, give me a hug, and, uh, and smell it, because it's, it's fantastic, <laughs> and give me the hug. Um, let's see, my, my home group is Kanye Lee. We meet uh, Monday nights at St. Andrew's Cathedral, uh, 745 uh, in Honolulu, so if you're in the area, come join us. Uh, my sobriety date is March 10th, 1986. I was 22 when I found the rooms, Today, I stand here at 53, and in my 31st year of sobriety. And um, that is a long time. (laughs) Um, Longer than some of my sponsees have been alive. And uh, I am so blessed and and, uh, grateful to have been graced with a life of sobriety. It is indeed second to none. Uh, I grew up in Honolulu as a fifth of six kids. Um, Both parents were alcoholics Uh, growing up was stressful. Uh, I knew uh, Abuse and neglect both physical and emotional My parents would say that I would march to the beat of my own drum and that was not a good thing and uh, They had many more colorful ways to say that um, and they shared their opinion with me on a daily basis They thought I needed to be like my older brothers, and I wasn't. Uh, So they ridiculed me, they shamed me, they blamed me, they called me names. And uh, just overall, it wasn't a pleasant childhood. Uh, I had my first drink freshman year in high school. I was 15. I went to a party and someone had spiked the punch. And uh, that was the first time I drank alcohol. Uh, I'm the kind of alcoholic who lit up like a firecracker from that very first time. And uh, at the end of the evening, my friends had to wrestle the alcohol away from me. Uh, The next day they're like, "Stephen, what happened to you? Um, I was baffled. I didn't know why I acted the way I did. Uh, Today I do. Uh, Today I know that I'm an alcoholic, uh, that I have a physical allergy of the body followed by a compulsion of the mind. And one drink is too many. Um, But that is an insight that didn't come to me right away. Uh, High school, I drank whenever I could. Um, I got kicked out of my prom for being drunk and uh, passed out uh, during uh, graduation. I don't remember that. Uh, After high school, I moved to uh, Waikiki, and I got a retail job in the evening. And then afterwards, I would go out drinking in the bars until they closed at 4 AM. Now, this is when the drinking age was 18. So I was drinking in bars until 4 o'clock in the morning as an 18-year-old. That continued. Uh, By uh, 21, I was trying to control my drinking with zero success. And um, I was in a spiral going down. Uh, and I saw no way out March 8th 1986 I wake up around noon and I'm hurting from my head to my toes and I say that that uh, promise to myself that that day I'm not gonna drink absolutely not no matter what I'm not going to drink said this so many times And uh, by 8 o'clock that night, I'm drinking. Uh, 4 o'clock the the next morning, I'm stumbling home, drunk, broke, and just absolutely sick and tired of being sick and tired. And uh, on my way to my high-rise apartment, I'm cutting through an empty lot. And there, I crumble to my knees, and I say this prayer. I say, God, please give me the courage and the strength to go home and jump. I can't take this pain anymore. I can't live with this. And uh, following that was that true moment of uh, incomprehensible demoralization uh, where I knew uh, without a shadow of a doubt that I wasn't going to jump and life wasn't going to change and I was just going to continue doing the same thing over and over. And it was such a crushing revelation. It was just too much. So I decided I had to do something different. And I jump in a taxi, and I go home to my parents' house. Now, they haven't seen me in a while. I've been avoiding them. Uh, They're early risers. So they see me stumbling at 5 o'clock in the morning, um, looking like a hot mess, um, obviously distraught. And I tell them, I have something to tell you. And uh, you know they're looking a little concerned. Uh, so we head to the, uh, to the dining room table where the family talks are held. Uh, and on the way to the, to the family room table, I cut through the kitchen. And just kind of out of habit, I open the refrigerator and grab a beer. <laughs> so um, I'm sitting on my side of the table with beer in hand, and they're on their side waiting for me to talk. And so I'm trying to gather my thoughts together. And I want to tell them that I can't stop drinking. My life's a mess. I want to kill myself. I need some help. Okay, so I'm trying to figure out how to say that. And then a thought comes to me that if I tell them I can't stop drinking and I need some help, they might not want me to drink this beer. (laughs) Okay. That... That thought completely stresses me out. (laughs) And now telling them doesn't seem like a very good idea. (laughs) But I'm in a pickle, it's five o'clock in the morning, I'm a mess, I'm here to tell them something. So uh, I, I look down at the table and I look up at them, down at the table, up at them, and I blurt out, mom, dad, I'm gay. Now I suggest that you might be alcoholic uh, if you're willing to come out to your parents to finish a drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So a day later, I'm in a psychologist's office to help me with the gay thing. <laughs> and uh, he has a form, I fill out the form and- One of the questions was around alcohol use. So I put something down that I thought was reasonable. (laughs) He didn't think so. He's looking it over and he's like, oh, do you drink like this every week? And by miracles of miracles, I told him the truth. And I said, no, I usually drink more. 20 minutes into that first session, he stands up and he says, come on, we're going on a field trip. Now, seemed a little unusual to me, but hey, it's my first time, you know? (laughs) So (laughs) we go down, we get in his car, and he's driving, and he says, Stephen, I'm going to take you someplace, and there's going to be other people. I don't want you to say anything. I just want you to listen. And I think to myself, I can do that. And he takes me to my very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank God we have caring, knowledgeable professionals that understand us. That man saved my life. So that was March 10th, 1986, my sobriety date. And uh, my first home group was called Grapes of Wrath. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My first um, service commitment was cleaning ashtrays. And my first sponsor was a kind and amazing man. And he gave me two things which I'd like to share with you tonight. First, he drilled the ABCs of this program into my head. A, that we are alcoholic and cannot manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And he would add, including sponsors. And C, that God could and would if he were sought. He would tell me, Stephen, as a room full of alcoholics, our primary purpose is to carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. And that is a message of hope. is a message of possibility, of healing. But you as an individual alcoholic, your primary purpose must be to establish and pursue a relationship with a power greater than yourself. For it is through that you will find relief. The second thing he gave me was, as a newcomer, I had a lot of drama. had a lot of problems in my life. So, I would go and I would tell him all about, I mean, all about it. And uh, he would sit and listen. And uh, I would always hope for a very specific answer on what I needed to do. But he was not very, oh, thank you so much. Uh, He was not very good with specifics. Um, He would tell me this. He would say, Stephen, whenever you find yourself in a difficult situation, where there's a lot of options, and you fear you're going to choose the wrong one. Always err on the side of compassion. Now, I have to tell you that over the years, whenever I find myself in a difficult situation, if I just have the clarity, the sobriety of mind to ask myself, what is the compassionate thing to do, an answer always comes. So that was 31 years ago. And uh, I've been trudging uh, ever since. And I uh, have a lot of stories uh, that I love to share. Uh, and with our limited time tonight, um, I'm just going to pick a few. Um, before I, but before I do that, what do I want to give you? Let me just have another sip. Um, before I do that, I, I want to give you my three big ahas that I have found uh, along this journey. My first is that my physical life and my spiritual life are one and the same, that I cannot separate them, that they are a reflection of one another. Two, that the spiritual path has been the path from me to we. That essentially what I've been able to do over these years is learn how to live life not only from the me perspective, but from the we perspective. To be able to experience the richness of life that we collectively live. And three, I've learned to love. Now the word that comes closest to the type of love I'm talking about is acceptance. I've learned to accept. People, places, and things, as they be. So some stories. Uh, Let's fast forward eight years sober. I'm living in Sarasota, Florida. And um, I've got a boyfriend. I've got a job. I've got friends. I'm going to meetings, but nothing crazy. Just a meeting here and there. And um, (laughs) just kind of living my life, you know. And um, this particular day, I'm out on one of the Keys, And this key was connected to the mainland by a low-lying bridge. And within this bridge, there was a drawbridge that could be raised to let watercraft through. So anyway, I'm out there doing something terribly important and uh, having to rush back uh, to the mainland. And so I'm running late, of course. So I'm speeding down this this, um, waterway. And up in the distance, I see the crossing arms start flashing and coming down to stop the traffic so that they can open the bridge. Oh my God, so my anxiety goes way up, and um, I slow down, stop the car, and then in protest to this very unfair situation I find myself in, (laughs) I turn off the car. So I roll down the window and I'm sitting there muttering to myself, like, why did they have to open it right now? And if they had only waited 15 seconds, I would have been past the bridge and on my way, but no, they had to do it right then. And whose fault is this anyway? So I'm trying to look around and find a a boat in the water. I find it, it's a beautiful sailboat, and I curse them. (laughs) Your fault, you're making me late. Um, And then with my mental powers, I try to push the boat faster through the bridge. (laughs) It's not working. And so I give up that, and I'm just kind of fidgeting and looking around. And my attention is caught by this car in front of me, and it's an old, beat-up car with dents and rust, and it has a bumper sticker on it. So I read the bumper sticker, and it says this. It says, Are you a human being having a spiritual experience, or are you a spiritual being having a human experience? And I just had this most impo- powerful, amazing insight just hit me right then, just out of the blue, and that was this, that I'm both. I'm both a human being having a spiritual experience, and I'm a spiritual being having a human experience, and what determines the difference? What determines how I experience my life are the actions I take. You know, our literature talks about the spiritual life is a life of action, that we practice our spiritual principles out here in the world, And it all just like came together so intensely and powerfully and so clear for me uh, in that moment. Uh, That moment lasted about three more minutes uh, until the bridge went down and the crossing arms went up and I sped back into my busy life. But I share that because looking back, uh, I could see something changed. Something was like planted in me that started to grow. Fast forward a few more years, I'm still living in Sarasota, Florida. It's a Sunday, and um, I'm working with a new sponsee. And we're going over the steps, and so I share with him about how my first sponsor always taught me to err on the side of compassion. So as I'm sharing this with him, I'm thinking in my head, well, in the last few months, I hadn't been so compassionate. (laughs) i have been kind of irritable and discontent. And so I thought it would be a good time for me to recommit to the practice. So that was a Sunday uh, afternoon. And uh, uh, by Thursday, I said, if I'm compassionate to one more jerk, uh, someone's going to (laughs) die. And it's not going to be me. (laughs) So I had to give up the practice. But... uh, (laughs) But what happened this time that had not happened before is a question came to mind. And the question is this, if being compassionate is the right thing to do, and I do believe it's the right thing to do, uh, why is it so hard? Why should the right thing be the difficult thing to do? I'd never thought about that before. So I sat with this question, I meditated, I reflected, and this goes on for a few more months. And then my answer comes to me, and my answer comes to me in the form of a quote. And the quote is from a very famous 20th century person. And the quote is this. The most important decision that a human being will make in their lifetime is the decision of whether they live in a friendly universe or a hostile one. Step three talks about us making a decision, a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understand Him. Now, all these years, I never thought really much about what kind of world did my God make for me. So I took uh, pen to paper, and I made uh, a list. On one side, I wrote uh, friendly, and on the other side, I wrote hostile. And um, I started with the hostile side because it seemed a little uh, more familiar at the time. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so I start to write down experiences that would prove that the world is hostile. So I'm writing, writing, and I fill up that that column and I'm reviewing it. And one thing struck me was that uh, a lot of the experiences were from my childhood. And as I'm kind of re, you know, bringing them up and feeling the feelings, I go, aha. That's why uh, it's so difficult to do the the right thing, because it's not the nature of the world. The nature of this world is dog-eat-dog. It's you get yours at someone else's expense. There's winners and there's losers. Being compassion is not natural. That's why it's so difficult. But I stuck with the exercise and I went over to the friendly column and I start writing things down that would prove that the world is friendly. And um, it quickly comes to me that these are not only experiences in my adult life, but these are experiences that I've had as a sober adult with my sober family and uh, just generous, kind people I've met, places I've been, experiences I've had there, and just the amazing, scenic beauty that I've seen that would absolutely convince uh, anyone that this was a friendly world. I think what's so powerful about that quote and about our step three is it says, make a decision. It does not say logically conclude from previous lived experience (laughs) the nature of the world. It says decide. And I decided right then and there that it made a heck of a lot more sense to live in a friendly universe, a a world in which God has got my back, in which things come to me for my protection and care, that um, I'm in the right place at the right time right now with the right people. And uh, I have to tell you, Uh, My world has not been the same since. Uh, The next story I'd like to share, uh, I have to back up a little. Uh, Actually, I have to back up a lot. And this story starts off with uh, boy meets boy on high school campus. And uh, I'm one of the boys. We're both 15. (laughs) Uh, He's Tahitian and totally hot. And uh, his nickname is Tay. And uh, I first see him coming out of the classroom next to me. Uh, And it was totally love at first sight. My little 15-year-old heart, you know, skips a beat and my breath catches. And uh, it turns out we have mutual friends. So through those friends, we become friends. And then we become good friends. And then we become best friends. And then we become inseparable friends, and uh, for a time, boyfriends. Now, Tay is athletic, and funny, and smart, and just totally amazing. And I remember in high school, measuring time, not by the bell schedule, but by when I would see him next. We graduate, he moves off to college, we remain close. At 22, I find the rooms of AA, and by 23, I'm living in Los Angeles. And we we stay in touch. So fast forward a little. Break. (laughs) Fast forward a little. We're both 28. And we're together having lunch and uh, just visiting. So 28, by now I have six years sober. And Tay, on the other hand, has been arrested for three DUIs, has been through two treatment centers, and just recently lost a professional license due to substance use. So anyway, we're together and we're having lunch, and kind of out of the blue, he says uh, he knows what's wrong, and he knows what's missing from his life. Oh? Yeah. Uh, He has decided that he needs to get married to a woman um, by his 30th birthday. And that what's missing is he needs a family. Um, I laugh at the idea. uh, But nevertheless, he's serious. And a month before his 30th birthday, uh, he gets married to a wonderful woman. And uh, he asked me if I would stand for him in in the wedding, and I do. So fast forward... A year, his daughter is born. The following year, his wife kicks him out of the house for yet another DUI, some time in jail for assaulting an officer, and another lost job. So he moves back to Hawaii. And uh, shortly after that, um, I was in a long-term relationship, which I ended, and I, too, moved back to Hawaii. And uh, what do I do when I get there? Uh, I get a sponsor. Still have him. Jim, he's here tonight. I get a home group. I get a service commitment. I get a job. And I kind of start my life. Tay, on the other hand, is having difficulty. Um, By now, he's going to AA meetings. But he's finding it hard to to stay sober. Uh, And he's finding it hard to keep a job. And uh, over time, he just gives up on the idea of working. And now he's financially able to do so, so he just stops uh, trying to, try to work and spends more and more time by himself. Well, we go to meetings, and we hang out, and we do things together. But over time, I start to get a little discouraged here. I mean, he's not working, and he seems to just be in this uh, cycle of relapse few more years go by years not months years and so uh, we kind of have fallen into this routine where we'd get together and I'd ask him about his day and how much sober time he had and he'd tell me and I'd roll my eyes and I'd shake my head and I'd shame him and I'd blame him and I'd ridicule him and I'd name call him and I'd tell him you know he's got to take this serious I'd do the little finger wag you know sobriety's not a joke uh, he would call, and I would and answer his calls. And uh, sometimes I'd just cancel our, our plans together because uh, I'd just be so irritated, right? Uh, uh, and I thought, you know, he just needs to get his life together. Again, now it continues another few more years. And then one night I'm at home, and I get a call from his sister, and she's crying. And she had just gone up to his apartment to check on him, and she found him dead in the bathroom. Now, the coroner said he had been dead for five days. And uh, a week later, after the necessary biological cleaners had been into the apartment, it's time to empty it. And his mom and sister had asked me, hey, if, if I could help. Specifically, they wanted me to clean out his bedroom. And I said, sure. So um, I go up there, and it's a hot, sunny afternoon. And the whole apartment just smells awful. And I go into his bedroom, and it's just a mess. And uh, so I start opening up drawers and uh, emptying the contents into large black trash bags. And I work my way around his his bedroom. And I come to his bookshelf. It's cluttered. But I notice there's one shelf that's like chest level and it's not and I look and he has like uh, four or five big books that look kind of worn and then next to it is a nice stack of uh, AA literature living sober um, uh, 24 hours daily reflections as Bill sees it and then next to that there's a beautiful wooden bowl and it's just heaped with sober coins most of them 24-hour, but there were 30-day and 60-day and 90-day chips in there, and I even noticed some brass coins uh, mixed in. Apparently, uh, Tay had kept every sober chip he ever got. Fuck. Maybe he did want to get sober. Maybe he was trying. Maybe this was something he really wanted in his life. A Couple more weeks go by and there's a small memorial on the beach for him. Uh, and it's just him and his family and me. And then afterwards a canoe ride out to scatter his ashes in the water. And on the canoe ride out, it's just me, his mom and sister. And the mom had asked me if I could hold the ashes And then when the time came, to lay them to rest in the water. Now this is early in the morning, and it's right off Diamond Head. Uh, For those of you who have been to Hawaii, it's a beautiful spot. And uh, we're in the water in the canoe, and the sun is just rising up um, behind Diamond Head Crater. And the sky is lit with that warm glow of sunrise. Uh, And the water is clear and calm and a beautiful deep blue. It was undeniably a beautiful morning, and I couldn't help but appreciate the beauty. It was also undeniably a sad day, and I felt lost in grief. And yet I felt such honor to be there in those final moments with Tay. Months later, I realized he had given me a gift. And that gift I give to you tonight. See, I loved him. I really did. I wanted him to be sober and to be happy and to be healthy. And in that strong desire, in that love for him, I unconsciously picked up the tools from my childhood. See, I believe my parents loved me. I think. My parents didn't want me to be different and gay. And so like them, I picked up the tools of ridicule ridicule and shame and blame and name calling. Today, I know my commitment. I'm committed to living in a friendly universe with a loving, caring God. I am committed to living knowing I'm in the right place at the right time right now with the right people. Today, I also know that it's okay to express love only through the tools of acceptance and understanding, through patience and tolerance, through kindness and compassion. See, this is the gift Tay gave me, that I am clear in the head today that when I see a newcomer enter the rooms of AA, I get to say, welcome home. And when I see a member who's struggling and coming back recounting days, I get to say, welcome home. I get to experience the gift of unconditional acceptance. You are my family. No matter your journey, no matter your pain, no matter your sobriety time, this is truly a WE program. We do this together. And um, the last story I want to share is about how a fellow aa helped me to expand my understanding of the WE. So this little break. <laughs> this story uh, takes place uh, July 2015 in Atlanta, Georgia, right after the World AA Conference. And uh, before I can tell this story, i, I got to back up a little, too. Um, years ago, I was in a meeting, and this guy shared that when he stepped into a New Year sobriety, what he liked to do is take the last year's sobriety coin and release it with intention. he would like to find some special way to let last year's coin go. Well, I kind of dug that, release with intention. So I picked up the habit. And over the years, I found some amazing uh, ways to, to do this. Well, in March of 2015, I turned 29 years Uh, sober. And at the time, I knew I was going off to a world conference in July. So I took last year's coin and I put it in my backpack, figuring I'd find some way at world conference to release it with intention. Uh, And if not, afterwards, I was going on vacation and I'd I'd do it there. In any case, um, I threw it in my backpack and didn't think much about it. So fast-forward July, World Conference, fabulous, had a great time. I was there with some friends from uh, Hawaii uh, that are here tonight to support me. And um, after the convention, they were going to stay in Atlanta, Georgia, for a few more days, and then I I was going off uh, on a vacation. So we say our goodbyes, and I head to the the metro to catch the train to the airport. So I'm down on on the train, the MARTA, or... Uh, wait, waiting for the, um, the train to the airport, I got my roller bag and my backpack. And uh, this guy walks up, and he has a roller bag and a backpack, and he asks me, is this the direction for the train to the airport? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, he, he's about my age, a little older, and so I ask him more, oh, were you here for the convention? And he says, yes, he was. So we get to uh, just kind of chit-chat. Uh, talk while we're there. He asks where I'm from. I say Hawaii. He's never been. Uh, I ask him. He says Rhode Island and uh, I've never been. The train comes. um, We get on. It's crowded uh, but there's one seat open so he sits down and then I stand in front of him and kind of, excuse me, I got a little nose. Sorry. Um, I, he sits down, and I kind of stand up above him, uh, and I hold on to the grip bar, and we just kind of continue to chit-chat. Uh, and he asked me, was this my first uh, World Conference? And I said, no, it was my third. Uh, what about you? And he says, uh, yeah, it was his first. And that both him and his wife had 27 years sober and had never been to a World Conference, and they thought, well, it was about time. So they had signed up for it, and he was so happy he had... He had gone and experienced it. Now, I notice he's he's by himself. So I ask him, oh, is your wife staying on longer in Atlanta? And uh, this is where the conversation drops to that next deeper level. He looks at me and says, "Uh, no, she didn't come. And then after a a pause, he says, "Uh, she recently passed away. And I really wasn't sure I wanted to come. But um, all my sober friends and family encouraged me to to come alone and and to be here. And so, um, you know, I say, well, you know, I'm sorry for for your loss. And we kind of ride a little in silence. And he says, "Uh, yeah, you know, he really was having uh, second doubts when he first got to the conference. But then the first night there was a band and the band had played this particular song. And as soon as they started playing this song, he knew everything was okay, that he was meant to be there and it was all right. Um, And he goes on to to say, well, that the night his wife died um, was a beautiful night and the house was full of their sober friends and family and there was a musician playing in the backyard and just... You know, people having a good time, and his wife was just so happy. Although she was in her bed, um, she was just so happy to see everyone uh, come over. And then later that night, he fell asleep in the chair next to her bed. And in the early morning hours, he wakes up with this song stuck in his head. He looks over, and his wife had passed. And he says, You see, that's the song that the band played. And, uh, so it was such a touching story, you know. I mean, I could see the grief and the sadness in this man. And and again, we're just riding on a on a train, you know, with people around. And I just can feel his, his sorrow. And I say to myself, what can I do for this man? And a thought comes to me that. Along, the, along this way, he had shared that he, he lived in Rhode Island and that his house butted up against some woods. And what he liked to do is take a walk through the woods. So without really thinking about it, I whip my backpack around and I dig out last year's silver coin. And I present it to him in a, in a closed fist. I say, here, I'd like you to have this. And so he reaches out to accept it. And uh, when I open my hand to give it to him and he sees it's a sober sobriety coin, he said, well, what's this for? So I explained to him how I like to release my coin with intention and that the woods next to his house sounded like such a beautiful place. and Maybe he could do me the favor of taking it on one of his walks and leaving it somewhere beautiful. Okay? So he has this real puzzled look in his, his face as I'm um, explaining this little voice in my head goes, oh, my God, Stephen, you're sounding like a weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, clearly he's not getting this. This is just weird, weird, weird. So I start to fill up with self-doubt. And so I ask him, oh, uh, how many years are on that coin? I want to make sure I gave you the right one. Still looking you know, puzzled at me, he looks down at the coin and flips it around so he can read the years, and he's kind of staring at it, and the color drains from his face. And very hesitantly, he asks me, you have 29 years? I said, yeah, yeah. And uh, he closes his hand around the coin and says, Yeah, this is the right one. And then silently starts to cry. Now the voice in my head is saying, You've really done it. (laughs) You just made this grieving man cry. Good job. (laughs) That's that's the way to go. So we ride a bit in silence. And uh, then he speaks up. And he says, You know, the... One thing he really wanted to get at the conference was a medallion to remember his wife by, and that you know around the convention there were a lot of shops selling all kinds of sobriety things, and he had spent a lot of time looking for just the right and perfect one. And uh, at one time he thought he had found it, but he wasn't so sure. So um, he he moved on, and then he decided to return, and by that time it had already been sold. So, here he was, leaving the conference without a medallion uh, to remember her by, and he just shakes his hand and he says, this is it. I'm going to keep this. And tears in his eyes. Yeah, of course, please. (laughs) Please keep it, you know? And we ride a little bit uh, more in silence. Get to the airport, we say our goodbyes, we hug, go our separate ways. And so now I'm at the the gate waiting for the plane, and I'm kind of thinking, what was it that was so emotional about this? Why was the guy so touched? And then it hit me, and I started to cry right there by myself uh, at the airport gate. And it's this, that he had shared that, um, you know that the party the, the night his wife died? he had shared that the friends and family weren't over there to say goodbye to his wife, but to celebrate his sober anniversary. And um, he had shared earlier that uh, both him and his wife had 27 years sober when they had registered for the conference. Then he has a sober anniversary, which would make it his 28th year sobriety, the night his wife passes away, and I just hand him a 28-year coin. I know that his wife was there with us that day, and my understanding of the we, the we we talk about, expanded. So I think the we is not only us, the living, the trudging, but I believe the we or all those who have come before us. For we are truly never alone. It has been an honor and a privilege to be here with you tonight. Thank you.